Welcome to Med Together. This is a podcast by the people, for the people, as it were. My name is Khana. I'm a med student in New York. This podcast deals with a lot of med school topics, starting from the basic sciences and building its way up, and hopefully it'll be a bit of review that can help y'all consolidate and synthesize important information and maybe phrase it in a way that's easy to understand. By the way, if you're pre-med or you're a nursing student or you're just interested in science medically topics and you're not in healthcare at all, you're totally welcome to. We don't discriminate. If you're interested, you're cool. Ready to rock? Let's do this. Hey everyone, welcome if you're new. Welcome back to my awesome repeat listeners. Today is part two of the carbohydrate metabolism talk and we're going to go over glycogen synthesis and breakdown, gluconeogenesis, and we'll touch on the pentose phosphate pathway just for the sake of completeness, but we're not going to say a whole lot about it. So to start off, how is glucose stored? Glycogen is the main store of glucose. Liver and muscle in particular have large glycogen stores, but most cells actually have some ability to store glycogen as well. Now, the structure of glycogen is interesting and important to its function. It's a branched polymer with a protein called glycogenin in the center, which holds the first glucose. So glycogenin is actually going to limit the amount of glycogen that you can build. Now, we know that glucose gets phosphorylated when it enters, and this happens to generate a G6P, glucose, which is phosphorylated on the sixth carbon, And that's not actually what we need for glycogen. So in a situation where the cell has enough glucose that it's allowing glycogen synthesis, we actually need G1P. So first things first, we have to convert G6P to G1P and then using UTP, which is a slightly unusual energy source, we convert that G1P to UDP glucose. UDP glucose is now a substrate for glycogen synthase, the enzyme that makes glycogen. And this new piece, this UDP glucose, can be added to the non-reducing end of a growing chain in an alpha-1,4 linkage. And this becomes a new non-reducing end. And then you add the next one and so on and so forth into a chain. Now, like we said before, glycogen is a highly branched molecule, which is useful because it allows it to be more soluble and more easily compacted and stored. And the branching occurs in an interesting way, which I thought was worth mentioning. So like I said, the glycogen pieces are generally added in a 1,4 linkage. So after about 11 alpha-1,4 linked glucose residues, the last seven will get pulled off by a branching enzyme, and then they add it on back onto the first of that 11 to create a branch by an alpha-1,6 linkage. So now you have two ends to build on. It's a little bit hard to picture without a visual, so if it's If that was confusing to you, I advise you to look at the figure in a textbook. It's fairly straightforward once you see it, but sometimes with these things that are like all about numbers, they're kind of visual and it's hard to do it in audio format. It's one of the drawbacks, but you know, such is life. Anyway, let's talk about regulation of this process. As you might imagine, we want more glycogen synthesis in the fed state and we might want more glycogenolysis in the fasted state. And as with most parts of metabolism, there's going to be a two-layered regulation here. There's going to be an intrinsic cellular regulation and there's going to be body-level hormonal regulation. So the cellular activation of glycogen synthase is driven by increased levels of G6P, which makes sense. And that's going to build up when there's lots of glucose around. Because remember, there's a little bit of a choke point in getting through PFK1, phosphofructose kinase 1, to be committed to the glycolysis pathway. And you get this G6P hanging around that's not really yet committed. And that G6P is going to drive levels of glycogen synthase. Interestingly, there are two forms of glycogen synthase. There's a phosphorylated form and there's a dephosphorylated form. The phosphorylated form is going to be less active, the dephosphorylated form is more active, but G6P in and of itself increases levels of both forms indiscriminately. And then the hormonal regulation is what's going to drive the predominance of one form over the other. So glucagon and epinephrine want to shift it away from glycogen synthesis, so they phosphorylate the synthase and make it less effective. 
whereas insulin makes it more active by dephosphorylating it because blood glucose is high and you have enough to store some. Now what about glycogen breakdown? Glycogenolysis occurs in a fasted state like you might imagine. The liver breaks it down and releases glucose into the bloodstream. Now all cells can store some glycogen, including muscle, but muscle and other cells just use their own glycogen. They can't send it out into the bloodstream. That's unique to the liver. So glycogen is broken down one glucose residue at a time by glycogen phosphorylase, and it generates G1P, which kind of makes sense because that's what it was built up from. Once you're near a branch point, you're going to need a debranching enzyme, which does it in a little bit more of a complicated way, but that's really probably not important. The only thing that maybe is kind of important there is that the actual residue that was the branch gets released as free glucose and not as a G1P, but that's honestly probably a point of interest. And if you're a point of interest, if you're interested, probably not something that's ever going to be tested on an exam. I can't imagine. So how is this breakdown regulated? At the cellular level, it's going to be similar to the way the glycolysis is regulated, actually. It's activated by high AMP, inhibited by high ATP, meaning that it's driven when there's a low energy state and it's inhibited when there's a high energy state because when there's a high energy state, there's no reason to be breaking down glycogen. We should be storing glycogen. Glycogen phosphorylase is also hormonally regulated by kinase and phosphatases similar to its counterpart, the glycogen synthase, but in the opposite way. What do I mean by that? Recall that the synthase was less active when it's phosphorylated. Well, this enzyme, when it's phosphorylated, becomes more active. And this allows for a super cool coordination of the synthesis and breakdown. So remember, glucagon is going to increase breakdown and inhibit synthesis because the phosphorylation has opposite effects on the two enzymes. So you don't get treadmilling and vice versa for the insulin because you're concerned about the net breakdown and synthesis balance. And this level of regulation is important in all cells because all cells break down and store glycogen. What's different about glycogen breakdown in the liver and the kidney is that only they can turn the G1P to glucose and release it into the bloodstream, which this is our first line option when blood glucose is low. When you run out of glycogen, that's when you turn to gluconeogenesis, which is, first of all, let's just establish this is not a reversal of glycolysis because there are steps of glycolysis that are by definition irreversible and we have to use other enzymes. But this is really not the first line. The first line is to break down glycogen because it's fairly energy cheap, fairly efficient, and fairly easy. But we do have to talk about gluconeogenesis, which, if not the very last resort of liver, is quite close to it because it's so energy demanding. And this is an instance where the activity of the liver might seem a bit counterintuitive because it's spending energy in a fasted state, but we have to understand that this is because of the overarching job of the liver, which is to keep the blood glucose steady. So yeah, it seems kind of weird that you're using ATP in a low energy state, but you know, you got to do what you got to do. So what are the substrates of gluconeogenesis? Because we know substrates are lactate and pyruvate, which remember interconvert into each other. So it's kind of like the same thing. Some amino acids like alanine, glycerol from triacylglyceride breakdown can also feed in at some points and oxaloacetate. All right. So how, what is different from glycolysis? Because most of it is actually really the same. Most of it is just glycolysis backwards, but there are three steps that are considered irreversible. Not because they're actually irreversible, but because they use different enzymes to go backwards. So they're called irreversible. It's kind of semantic, honestly. But let's remind ourselves about what those irreversible steps are. And it's pretty easy to remember. It's the last step, the first step, and the PFK1 step. So let's talk about the last step, reversing pyruvate kinase. So the conversion of phospholinopyruvate, or PEP, to pyruvate by pyruvate kinase is irreversible because kinases only do one thing, which is to phosphorylate. So we need another, we need other ways to generate PEP. And so this can be done 
indirectly from pyruvate. Lactate and alanine both can be converted into pyruvate, so that's kind of saying the same thing. And what happens is pyruvate carboxylase, which is an enzyme in the mitochondria, can convert pyruvate directly to oxaloacetate by adding CO2. If you, can re if you recall from last episode, this enzyme is in opposition to pyruvate dehydrogenase, which converts pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. So allowing this action is regulated by the amount of acetyl-CoA. If CoA is low, the dehydrogenase is going to take it forward to CoA instead of allowing it to go back to oxaloacetate. And this is where the acetyl-CoA from adipose breakdown becomes very important because this buildup of CoA in the liver from free fatty acids sent to it from the adipose tissue allows the carboxylase to work. In the fasted state, adipose tissue releases free fatty acids, and those increase the acetyl-CoA in the mitochondria of the liver, which then pushes pyruvate backward into oxaloacetate. Now, using GTP, oxaloacetate can be made into PEP and can be released into the cytosol. Or there is another option, which is because oxaloacetate cannot leave the mitochondria on its own, you can convert it to malate, which consumes NADH, and then the malate transporter can take it out into the cytosol and it can be converted back to oxaloacetate out there, generating NADH, and it can then be converted to PEP in the cytosol by PepsiK. Either one works. The reason why you might want to generate NADH is because if you remember that step last time that generates NADH in the forward reaction, so it needs NADH for the backward reaction. So that's why if you convert the oxaloacetate into malate in the mitochondria, send it out through the malate shuttle, and then convert it back to oxaloacetate, you regenerate some of that NADH, and it helps drive the gluconeogenesis in the correct backward direction. All right, so that was the last step. Now, if we're working backwards, we have to get to the PFK1 step. So how do we do reversal of this PFK1? We need a completely different enzyme because, again, this is a kinase. Kinases only do one thing. Kinases only phosphorylate, and we want to dephosphorylate. So what do we do? We need another enzyme to do this job, which is to take fructose-1,6-bisphosphate back to fructose-6-phosphate. So if you recall, the forward pathway is regulated by PFK2 action. And when fructose-2,6-bisphosphate is high, it drives it forward. Now, in the fasted state, PFK2 is inhibited and fructose-2,6-bisphosphate is low. Now, this is important because fructose-2,6-bisphosphate inhibits an enzyme called fructose-bisphosphatase, which catalyzes the backward reaction that we need. So when fructose-2,6-bisphosphate is low in a fasted state, it releases fructose-bisphosphatase, which can do its job, drive the backward reaction, and gluconeogenesis is a go. Finally, we have to do the hexokinase reversal and undo that very first step of phosphorylating the glucose to trap it inside the cell because we want to untrap it inside the cell and release it into the blood. So as we know, as we just talked about in the last two steps, the opposite of a kinase is a phosphatase. So we need a phosphatase. And what's interesting here is that the catalytic portion of the phosphatase is in the lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. It's not free in the cytosol. And there's a G6P transporter that can bring the glucose that's fresh out of the gluconeogenesis into the ER so it can be dephosphorylated. And then the dephosphorylated glucose can leave the ER and leave the cell through the glute. And it's where it comes out is located physically very close to the glute. So it kind of comes out of the ER straight through the glute before there's a chance for it to be caught by anything else. Now, the reason why we want this enzyme, this phosphatase, to be sequestered in the endoplasmic reticulum is because we don't want treadmilling happening with hexokinase. If it's out in the cytosol, it's going to it's gonna dephosphorylate and the hexokinase is going to phosphorylate and you're going to waste a lot of energy just, going, just treadmilling around and around and around. So if you recall, another layer of this is that in the fasting condition, hexokinase is going to be mostly sequestered in the nucleus so that the free glucose that comes out of the ER 
is anyway subject to less hexokinase. And the fact that it's released physically close to the GLUT2 all helps it get out and into the blood where it belongs. This glucose 6-phosphatase regulation is a very important regulation point because both glycolysis and gluconeogenesis converge at this point. So the, this is a, an important node of control for whether this is the pathway is going to go forward or backward. And so therefore, there's actually transcriptional regulation of G6-phosphatase in the fasted-fed transition. So when your body is in a fed state, there's there are actually lower levels of G6-phosphatase versus in a fasted state where we upregulate transcriptionally the levels of G6-phosphatase. So I mentioned this before, but the energetic cost of gluconeogenesis is quite high. This is an expensive process. You need approximately seven moles of ATP per glucose molecule. And the energy to do this comes from the fatty acid breakdown and the acetyl-CoA. When we talk about lipid metabolism, we'll talk a little bit more about that coupling, but just for now, because we can't do everything all at once, I wish we could, but we can't, you just have to know and take my word for it that the fatty acid breakdown contributes the energy to allow for gluconeogenesis. Another thing I just want to mention but not dwell on is the Cori cycle. So the muscle works very hard and it produces lots of lactate because it usually outstrips its oxygen supply, which is not really useful to the muscle, but it can be useful to the liver. So there is this cycle in which the muscle provides lactate to the liver for gluconeogenesis. And alanine produced in the muscle can also be converted to pyruvate for gluconeogenesis. So the muscle makes the alanine from pyruvate because alanine travels more easily, and then the liver converts it straight back to pyruvate once it receives it. Before we wrap up for today, I want to touch on some other fates of glucose in the cell, the pentose phosphate pathway and glycoprotein production. So what is the pentose phosphate pathway? This pathway generates NADPH from glucose 6-phosphate using G6B dehydrogenase, and it's just regulated by the amount of G6P available. NADPH is key for fatty acid synthesis and for creating glutathione for redox regulation and controlling redox and other biosynthetic reactions. So glucose being shuttled down the PPP is anabolic friendly. When there's lots of glucose in the cell, the pathway is going to get activated. And it has kind of two arms. It has an oxidative arm, which generates NADPH in the process of creating nucleic acid precursors. And it has a non-oxidative arm, which creates nucleic acid building blocks without any NADPH. So once again, this is really important in redox and free radical scavenging, and also in generating nucleic acid building blocks so that the cell can build DNA. So it's really crucial for replicating cells. Now, one disorder to kind of know with the pentose phosphate pathway is G6PD deficiency, because this is going to come up. It's a deficiency of the enzyme needed to convert G6P and generate NADPH for the glutathione pathway to prevent oxidative stress. So if you can't do this, you get oxidative damage, and particularly this affects red blood cells. So you're going to get red blood cell death via acute hemolytic anemia, leading to jaundice, hematuria, often fatigue, and malaise as well. This is an X-linked genetic disorder. There are many different known mutations of varying severity, and it may convey some malaria resistance. There's some evidence to that. It's fairly prevalent in the sub-Saharan Africa and, and Southeast Asia. Now, because there are many different forms of this disease, some people are going to have chronic hemolysis. These people are going to be born with neonatal bilirubinemia. Some individuals may be totally asymptomatic, and some may only have hemolysis when there's oxidative stress like infection, some drugs and chemicals, and fava beans. This is sometimes called favism. Fava beans, like this should be a word association red flag for you on any standardized exam. If you see fava beans on an exam, it's a G6PD deficiency. Take my word for it, okay? Also, there are lots of drugs that can do this, like I said, but the 
anti-malarial, and the sulfa antibiotics are the most common ones to keep in mind. Now, some other findings that you might have in G6PD deficiency, you can see Heinz bodies on a blood cell smear. So this is precipitated hemoglobin from the damage to the red blood cells. Or you may see these things called bite cells, which literally look like cells with a bite taken out of them because the spleen actually has bitten off a piece of the red blood cell to try to clear the Heinz bodies. So you can partially diagnose this on a smear, but you can also do an enzyme assay to confirm the diagnosis. There's no real treatment for this. We avoid, try to avoid the stressors that send people into oxidative stress. Uh, we give folic acid to support bone marrow and we give red blood cell transfusions if necessary. One other fate of glucose in the cell that I want to talk about is glycoproteins. So glycoproteins are sugar moieties, which are attached to proteins during their synthesis and they're modified as they get processed. There's evidence that it affects folding and it may help lock it into the conformation. Many of these are membrane proteins and the sugar stabilizes and protects the protein structure in the unfriendly extracellular environment. And these carbohydrates are often used for cell identification, cell signaling, and this is another anabolic-friendly pathway. So if, you're, if you can slow the flux of the glycolysis pathway towards pyruvate, it's going to allow glucose to be diverted to these pathways as well and build things up for the cell. Now, one more thing. Just because it's fun and some of you may have experience with it, let's talk about creatine kinase. Aha, I knew I would get some of your attention with that. So this is a kinase that creates a readily available energy source by taking a phosphate group off of ATP and popping it onto creatine to create creatine phosphate. Try saying that five times fast. Create creatine phosphate. Creatine phosphate then stores that phosphate group and it can give it back to ADP to turn it into ATP on demand. So it's an energy source, but it's a low energy energy source, which is kind of cool. It's super important in heart, in smooth muscle, in the brain, and people often take creatine as a supplement to help build muscle. And it works because it's supplying more energy to your muscle and it allows for faster repair of micro tears and it allows for growth via activation of anabolic hormones. Because we see creatine show up in the brain a lot, there's evidence that it might have neuroprotective effects as well. So shout out to all the gym bros who are accidentally protecting their brains by taking creatine instead of anabolic steroids. Good job. Keep it up. Okay, enough of that. We're pretty much done with carbohydrate metabolism. We discussed glycogen storage and breakdown today and how the hormonal regulation of each of these processes works in tandem so we avoid treadmilling as much as possible. We talked about gluconeogenesis, the energy-driven process of creating new glucose, which is driven in a large part by the breakdown of fatty acids. We also mentioned the pentose phosphate pathway, the disease G6PD deficiency to know from that, and I even told you why your creatine powder works, so bonus points. Next time, we'll do a quick talk on the pancreas and really try to hammer the finer points of hormonal regulation of carbohydrates, and then we'll be on our way to lipids. Thank you so much for listening and sticking with me till the end. If you enjoyed this episode and you learned something today, I'd really appreciate if you'd recommend this show to a friend and help grow the audience. And of course, always feel free to reach out to me at medtogether26 at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys. Catch you in the next episode.